Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm your radio, radio show. I'm your radio, radio show. Hello and welcome to the Nine or Nine podcast. You're listening to a podcast all about music where we deep dive and talk about topics relevant to the music world right now is myself, Nine or Nine, and my co-host, Andrea Cleary. Hello. Hi, prompt. everyone. Hi. That's me. I never understand my prompt. Hello. I, know, I just drop it on you. So we we want to talk about something specifically this week uh, on the podcast, and it's not something we normally do, but I guess we've been changing the format a bit recently, and we're kind of talking a bit about like deep dive stuff. And something happened last week, which made a lot of sense why we might be talking about this. We want to talk about My Bloody Valentine, and specifically their album Loveless. Why? Because last week, Domino, the record company, announced that they were signing uh, My Bloody Valentine and had effectively put the band's catalogue back on streaming services, along with some physical editions that are to come and are available for pre-order right now of all their albums uh, out on the 21st of May. Isn't anything Loveless and the EPs and Rare Tracks and MBV from 2013, which was the long-awaited, overdue, 22 years in the making album. But what we want to focus on really is Loveless itself. Obviously, it's a, a lot of people would know it as a classic album. We are going to talk specifically about, you know, where it sits now. In terms of, you know, the pantheon of great records, how how it is relevant now, talking a bit about, you know, the backstory it obviously had at the time, it was always talked about as a kind of like, oh, this was a huge album that had a lot of blood, sweat and tears, There's a lot going on. We're going to get into a bit of that as well. And then at the end, we're going to expose it all for the scam it is. Loveless <laughs> is trash and you're all wrong. <laughs> I'm completely joking. <laughs> Obviously, yeah, no. completely joking. I'd be cancelled. You know, the news was it came out last week and uh, I went out for a dog walk, walked around with my headphones on and listened to Loveless. And it was my first time in a long time. Well, because it was, they are like new versions of Loveless, all mastered. So apparently 
fully they've been the new versions have been mastered from analog for deluxe LPs and also mastered from high res uncompressed digital sources for standard LPs. And so I'm not sure if the digital file versions that are on uh, Spotify are actually any different, but uh, there's some men on Reddit who definitely uh, definitely reckon that they're different. Are they okay? But, right. but I, I I don't know. That's Reddit. Men, so the men on Reddit have spoken. The men on Reddit. You you know those guys. Yeah, but definitely, like, it's the first time I've listened to it since I've had a really good pair of headphones, like, uh, rather than the crappy in-ear ones. And it really made a huge, huge difference. It's such an immersive experience to listen to that album all the way through on a pair of headphones out in the world. And it really uh, rekindled my interest in the band and specifically Loveless as well. Loveless is the second studio album. It was released on 4th of November 1991. We're going to get into a bit of why gestation period of that album and why mm. what happened. And uh, Before we do that, can I ask what your relationship is like with Isn't Anything? Just quickly, I know this podcast isn't about it, but are you where, where do you kind of sit on that? Because there's a lot of My Bloody Valentine fans... Uh, who really love it and see it as like the blueprint for what was to come, uh, uh, maybe a little bit more accessible. And then a lot of my Bloody Valentine fans are just like, nah, it's not for me. Yeah, I'd probably be in the latter camp. I I, I see it, it it has dated a lot more Mm. in terms of, so it feels a bit more like that of that time, a record of that time, Mm. where Loveless is very much, um, it seems to have transcended the, discography and time time that it was released in it is something that uh, hasn't dated fully because it's it was so different and uh, hmm. and I think when I when I went back and listened to it, isn't anything last week I felt like the tropes of the genre whether you call it a shoegaze or rock at the time like the likes of Jesus and Mary Chain and all that kind of stuff that was around um, it does it definitely feels like it fits into that mold and as a mm. result it feels like it's more dated for me <clears throat> it's not all like I mean there's definitely signs that there's some um, some of the sounds in there sonics are, are would lead to what Loveless would become perhaps but um, Loveless is to me the definitive document of uh, my, my Valentine's work to date because they are still <clears throat> apparently doing stuff and there's a new york times article last week that said there was two albums on the go that kevin shields had been working on and uh but yeah i think we'll it's it's interesting to see how you know so much has changed music so much has changed that would this album have had a different impact as much of an impact does any album that's considered a classic if it was released at a different time or a few years later or 10 years later, would it have the same impact? And the answer is probably no for most albums. Um, but Loveless has endured in its own way as a fine example of, well, a completely individual bit of music, isn't it? Mm. I mean, it really is. Um, should we actually just like set it up? Let's play the opening like 30, 40 seconds of Only Shallow yeah. on the album, just to give you a bit of a, a flavor of what we you can expect. Oh, 
Okay, that is the opening song, Only Shallow from Loveless. And uh, there's plenty more, <coughs> obviously, uh, but it's such a, a raucous kind of start to the album that actually, you know, how would you characterize the album overall? I think for a lot of people, Loveless was this moment in time where everything changed. But Loveless was released two days after my first birthday. So <laughs> I've kind of always lived in a world where Loveless has existed. I don't remember the first time I heard it. I don't I don't I never had this big kind of like moment where it just hit me. It was always there. And I, I remember getting kind of into shoegaze via kind of the Jesus and Mary chain and ride maybe in my like early 20s and then was like oh yeah my bloody valentine's a thing um and then kind of went and listened to loveless and and yeah it's 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 weird co- coming to that to to an album that people speak about so much as being this like bef- bc and ad moment in music um but living in a world and listening like ha- having kind of found it through the music that it like inspired and uh, had, had a huge impact on so i mean the the, the sound is it, i mean it's often described as kind of almost like a wall of sound and a salt of guitars a lot of these kind of big masculine words are often like throw, thrown around about it but i think i think what what is really happening is that it it, it is such an exper such a tonally experimental album and also very kind of what's the word like sneaky in how how experimental it is if that makes sense like how like yeah. you, you you can listen to it at first and think like oh yeah there's there's a lot of guitar effects going on here there's a lot of different pedals there's a lot of kind of maybe digital manipulation but really it's not there isn't a whole lot of effect work going on it's mostly done by fucking around in the studio using mics and reverb and portamento and microtones and all these different recording techniques that create all of this mad feedback and mad noise and then all of that stuff is then harnessed into melody and Kevin Shields kind of maniacally capturing it and manipulating it to his own will so I mean to my ears for so many years listening to it I didn't really appreciate the magic in that because I assumed it was done through all of these like effects and stuff like like everything kind of after it was but then it was only really when I started reading about how Shields was recording this that I appreciated like the process itself what it is uh, how everything is subservient to guitars it's uh, my theory is that it is a guitar concerto and everything is subservient and serves the guitars you know the vocals are so low in the mix the drums even like for for such a for such an an incredibly like like genre defining rock album the drums are quite like they're not really playing a huge part throughout like most of the record so it's yeah it's a it's a really interesting album for for the way that it it sounds like a lot of other things and yet like nothing else um and it's and it's done through all of these incredibly complicated um crazy techniques that i don't fully understand because i'm not a guitar person but it's you mentioned uh, portamento a musical term there so how, mm. how would you like um, for people who don't know what that means what would you say that uh, is so how it does por- apply here 
Portamento is kind of um, so. Do, do, do you, you know glissando? Like if you're moving up and down a neck on on a guitar or a violin or whatever, you're kind of moving from one note down to another. Portamento is kind of s- sliding between different notes, but kind of capturing or like highlighting the microtones that are in between those two notes so semitones or quarter tones so it can give a really it it can be a really strange auditory experience to kind of have so much going on like in between the notes there if if that makes sense like the journey of the notes as opposed to the um... the journey of the notes that's so lovely actually (laughs) yeah it's it's kind of it's accessing and highlighting the the pitches that are in between the notes as far as i remember from my studies you know like a wham wham bar thing that yeah. that sort of taps into that it's it's that sort of thing and it's and it's used uh, a, a lot on like on this record the bending yeah all all of that kind of stuff yeah so i mean i i guess that's that's sort of the sound but it's also a sound that you kind of just have to listen to i mean a lot when like when you talk to people about loveless and about my bloody valentine apart from talking about like the live shows which maybe we'll talk about a little bit later um and how they hurt your ears because they're really loud. Also, a lot of people kind of talk about how you, this in particular is an album that they maybe needed to spend a lot of time with, that it wasn't immediately very accessible to them. And I think a big part of that is the kind of the legacy and the the amount of praise that we have for this album. Like if somebody says to you, oh, I actually don't like Loveless, there is a kind of like a... <laughs> There's there's a lot that kind of comes with that, you know, especially Irish people. Um, yeah, we're we're incredibly proud of this band. We're we're incredibly proud that that this is an an Irish unit that's that's creating this music and that that is lauded all over the world by all these different musicians. All these like just you know creating like um, a million guitar players. Uh, I, I can't remember who said it, but I read a cool quote that, that it's just, somebody said, uh, My Bloody Valentine is the band that spawned a, th- a, a million guitarists who all learned to play the guitar wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I really like that. I think that's a really, a really decent legacy. But, um, but yeah, so, I mean, there's, there's a lot kind of, there's a lot of rumor. There's a lot of contested things about the recording process. And I'm going to tell you all about it. Okay, so we're going back to 1989. The band are with Creation Records, who were described by the enemy as, at the time, living hand to mouth. They had no money. It was a year before they were bought out by Sony. Three years before Oasis released, definitely, maybe, which kind of solved a lot of financial issues for for that label, but also Sony helps. And the label needed a follow-up to Isn't Anything, which came out in 1988. And they were prepared to spend the money investing in it. Um, and the band, propelled by Kevin Shields' quest for sonic perfection, which is, which is a thread that's going to run throughout this kind of area of the story a lot, Recorded the album in 19 different studios, um, racking up a bill to the tune of around £270,000. Now, Shields contests this figure. That figure was originally speculated by Melody Maker, and Shields says it was actually closer to around £160,000. And before the recording started, 
she also kind of said to the label, yeah, this, this can be done in five days. Um, we, we can get this done in five days. Uh, what I've written here in my notes is that sweet summer child. Um, so, (laughs) and I mean, as you can imagine for an indie label, like, I mean, in 1989, 270 grand or 160 grand whatever it is that's a lot of money that is quite the sum of money it's quite the sum of money today and the label after uh loveless was recorded dropped the band citing difficulty working with kevin shields but why what was the difficulty a lot has been reported about it some of it is contested some of it is backed up but i've made a kind of a cliff notes for you okay so in February in 1989, they were set to record at Blackwig Studios in South Wark in London. When it became clear that actually the album couldn't be recorded in a few months, Shield said the label, quote, freaked. Um, the band were pretty unproductive for a few months, basically from February to September uh, of that year. And then in September, they relocated to Elephant Studio, a basement studio in Wapping, where they were unproductive again for another eight weeks. Then they get this guy, Nick Robbins, or no, Nick Robbins came along with the studio. He's the in-house engineer. And he has later said that Shields made it clear to him that he was just there to push the buttons. He was to have absolutely no input creatively into this project. Um, And, you know, fine. Um, he left or was fired, we don't know, but they replaced him with this guy called Harold Burgeon, who basically, <laughs> like his, his input was to show the band how to use the computer, which I would argue is really important. But, you know, he, he then worked with Shields for three weeks at the Woodcray studio in Berkshire. So I think we're on the fourth studio now, um, where they recorded the Glider EP and, uh, that I, I I'm not sure if the EP was initially kind of in the band's plan, but Alan McGee, who is the owner of Creation Records, remember him, he's gonna come up more. Uh he insisted that it would be put out ahead of the album release. Then finally, Shields found somebody who could he could work with. Um, found this guy Alan Mulder. He mixed soon for the EP. He returned as an engineer for some of the recording of Loveless and was, somebody's online said he was even even trusted to mic the amplifiers, which <laughs> it was actually, when when you think about how important that is to the sound of this record, it's quite, it's, it's quite a job to be given. Um, so yeah, this guy, Alan Mulder was allowed to come in and work and the rest of the engineers who came along with that studio were told that they didn't need to come into work that day or any day. <laughs> So then this brings us to 1990, uh, Alan Mulder, the, the, uh, sound engineer, he left the project to go and work with Shakespeare's sister who are banging, um, and was yeah. replaced by this guy, Anjali Dutt, I think D-U-T-T, would you say Dutt or Dutt there? I'll go Dutt. Um, yeah, Shields, Shields really, really liked this guy. He, uh, they, they moved around, he, he moved around various studios with the band and they settled, uh, on protocol in Holloway. And things then actually kind of started happening with the album. They recorded their second EP, Tremolo. Then the band broke for a tour to make some money. Uh, and when they got back and saw what little work had been done, the studio was 
absolutely furious with them. <laughs> they like they're like, oh my god, there's there isn't even anything close to an album here yet. You know, like we, they have the two EPs, but that's what like four songs. Molder left. He left in 1991 to work with Shakespeare's sister. After that, he did fine. Yeah, he he went. He worked with the Jesus and Mary Chain. He worked with Shakespeare's sister. Um, Smashing Pumpkin, Siamese Dream, and probably that yeah. was fairly influenced by um, Loveless. Absolutely, definitely. Yeah, uh, he, he did, did a fine. lot of Nine Inch Nails, uh, Downward Spiral. He did that as well. Yeah. He did a lot of Corn, Marilyn Manson, that kind of stuff. Yeah, as well. I, I, I feel like a lot of acts who were inspired by My Bloody Valentine would immediately hear like, "Oh, you managed to work with Kevin Shields for like more than a month, and you survived. Uh, please come." Um, anyway, so Shields then returns to the studio, this time with Belinda Butcher. It's the first time that she'd been in the studio at all for the album. Up until now, it's just Shields to record some vocals. And reportedly, they hung curtains. You, you know, the window that separates like the where, where you're recording and then the sound engineers and stuff. They hung curtains on those windows to block out the engineers. And would kind of acknowledge a good take, like, yeah, keep that one by drawing the curtains and giving a thumbs up to them. Um, One of the engineers, this guy, Guy Fixen, a quote from him is, we weren't allowed to listen while either of them were doing a vocal. You'd have to watch the meters on the tape machine to see if anyone was singing. If it stopped, you knew you had to stop the tape and take it back to the top. So, (laughs) a bit of a nightmare. Um, So yeah, Belinda Butcher, she didn't play guitar on the record really. And she said that she didn't mind that because she never, uh, she felt as though she wasn't a great guitarist. Her vocals were often recorded first thing in the morning, 7.30 a.m. when she'd just woken up after like a really late night lyric writing session between the pair of them that could go on until the early hours of the morning. Debbie, the bassist, said, a quote from her, at the beginning, I used to go down to the studio most days, but after a while, I began to to feel pretty superfluous, so I went down less. Then Belinda says about this, for Kevin to actually translate to Debbie what he had in his head and play it right would have been an agonizing process. Alan Mulder, uh, uh, he later said, it wasn't collaborative at all. Kevin had a clear view of what he wanted, but he never explained it. But we should note here that uh, Belinda Butcher contributed around a third of the album's lyrics. Um, yeah. And I read a, a bit about uh, an interview with uh, Kevin Shields and The Quietus recently. He was talking about uh, Colin McCusick's, uh, what he did in terms of drums, obviously there, there was a big part of this as well as, you know, the creative control that was, that afforded two shields and he basically took uh, major control of it. But also Colin, because he was uh, quite sick at the time, so uh, yeah. he wasn't able to do full amount of drums. Um, so he disappeared for a few months and he was the one <coughs> who would use the computer and the sampler, which allowed shields to do more stuff. Yeah. So he he was asked about this and I was like, but I was, I was writing the music and playing all the instruments. This is Kevin Shields. So I guess Debbie and Belinda playing wise never really had a role, but they didn't mind because it allowed the music to develop in a much more free way. If you're in a band that everyone's competing to have their parts heard, things don't happen. So that was the good side of it. Didn't have to be bass. It didn't have to be guitar. Didn't have to be vocals. Anything could happen. It wasn't done in an egotistical way. I wasn't thinking I have to do this all myself, but it's quicker to do it as you write it. You have to write it and say, here, learn this and then then get a sound it's too slow it's not spontaneous but it's quite common in the studio a lot of bands you'd really be surprised a lot of bands don't play on the records um, and mm. then specifically about huge the, if true 
Yeah. <laughs> but specifically, well, that is true a lot of time. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, like uh, about the drumming itself and on the record, we, we took all the playing live he'd done and sampled it. He was already playing those patterns, but we recreated it. We'd had some problems with the engineer, though. The first engineer walked out of disgust. We wouldn't listen to anything he had to say. We're trying to mute the drums, so he did. they didn't sound like rock drums. And he was saying, that's terrible. That's not rock and roll. We said, <laughs> well, we hate rock and roll. And he said, it doesn't sound natural. We said, that's exactly what we want. So he left. Mm. <laughs> that's awesome that's great and I mean look <laughs> I think uh, th- th- there is obviously a element of egotism to Kevin Shields recording process we can't pretend that there isn't I mean I'm I'm grateful to it I think he's a genius but um C- Cullum did manage to get into the studio and he played in studio on Only Shallow and Touched so those are the two that don't have the sample drums in it okay so July they relocate studio again to East Coast. Creation Records didn't have enough money to pay the previous studio. They were basically being bankrupt by this project. So that last studio tried to keep all of the equipment left there by the band like as payment. And I think I couldn't get like a, a proper source on this, but I think Shields paid for the equipment then to be moved like he paid what whatever it was or they found money some somehow and they moved to this um this new this new studio all of this as you can imagine was taking a massive toll on basically everybody around the band with, with the exception exception of um column everyone in the band kind of seemed fine but around the band like and anjali dut the engineer was reportedly desperate to leave the project creation records dick green who was who's like the second in command to alan mcgee reportedly had a nervous breakdown he was seen shaking going around the place his hair turned gray overnight uh sh- and then as well as shields and butcher when they got back from their tour, they had to pause recording for a few weeks because the pair of them had tinnitus, probably due to the, you know, yeah, the wow. the sound of, of their live shows taking a toll on, on, on their ears. So finally, they relocated for the last time to the church at Crouch End in the autumn of 1991. <laughs> this, this is like the final nail in the coffin. Like the equipment that they used to master the record was really old. It was originally used to cut together dialogue for films in the 1970s. And so it threw like the whole thing out of whack. And instead of the one day that Shields had said like, yeah, it'll take one day. I promise it'll be one day to master it. Shields told the label he would need 13 days to master it. (laughs) Which is highly unusual. It's, it's a really, it's a really long time. And I mean, remember what, what was it? He said that the whole thing could be done and dusted in five days. You know, this is, this is yeah. two years later and, and he's just coming back to poor, poor Alan McGee. Like just, yeah. <laughs> just the, all the creation records just and tearing the time, their hair out. Like, yeah, oh the whole time God. he paid and he was never allowed into the studio either. <laughs> no, then, no, wasn't allowed to hear anything. Wasn't allowed to have any input and absolutely nothing. And the titles of the songs apparently are answers to uh, Alan McGee when he when he was asked when is music coming and uh, the first single being called soon. It was a response to that. (laughs) I didn't know that. That's brilliant. And the same is when do I get the album? Um, The next thing I've got to hear knows when. So he was just (laughs) messing with him the whole time. Eventually, like he, there is a quote from Alan McGee where he says. 
Uh, Kevin, you've got to let me in the studio, man. I've nearly paid £200,000 uh, for music that I've never heard. <laughs> and eventually yeah. he did How old was in. Kevin Shields at this stage? He was um, born in question. 1963. Yeah. So what would that have made him? Uh, I can't do maths. What would that have made him in, like, in 1991? Uh, yeah, he's 28. Yeah, okay. So not, <laughs> young, man. young enough to get away with it, but definitely old enough to know better. <laughs> like, yeah, but yeah, yeah, so then eventually, finally, the album was released on November 4th, 1991. And honestly, I think, is it any wonder the band waited uh, 22 years to record it t- together again? Um, I've, I have a quote here from, um, from Shields speaking to NPR in 2018 in a, a podcast radio show thing that I, I, I really recommend uh, seeking out. It's really interesting. He says, it wasn't supposed to take that long. It wasn't supposed to be that hard, but this thing broke us in a way. It used it used all our money up and put us in a very not good place when we should have been recording this album. I was constantly stopping basically to go back into this whole thing. And it did lead to a kind of a promise that that's over, that going into the rabbit hole kind of thing where I'll go until it's done. I won't be doing it for the next three or four years. Well, because there's a lot of music that's never going to happen. That feeling never really felt powerful to me up until the past couple of years when I really suddenly felt like this is nearly never ending. That was in 2018 to uh, to to NPR. There's, there's a lot more. Yeah, I mean, I do recommend people going and looking at different things that people like see- seeking out some more quotes from some of the engineers and some of the people that were working in the studio. I didn't include everything there because I also didn't want to be like piling on Kevin Shields at the same One time. One of the engineers who just spent all his time reading Lord of the Rings instead and he just let them yeah. out. <laughs> God, God, gotta love that. God, God, gotta love the music industry in the early 90s where someone could afford to do that in a studio. Yeah. But yeah, let's let's take another song. What what What, what do you want to listen to? I mean, it's. Uh, I want you to pick this one because we played the opening track only shallow. I'd go for when you sleep. Okay, here we go. When you sleep. Okay, that's When You Sleep from Loveless. I mean, it's such an interesting album and even there, like, uh, it almost sounds like a regular release, but I think it's taken overall as a whole. There's such a, uh, a drifting, um, sleepy, 
like hazy heaviness to the whole thing than when you listen to it all at one go. I think it's slight, sometimes slightly diminished by just playing a bit of a song from Loveless mm. because I think the entire experience is definitely one that uh, is is the intention I think uh, overall mm. there's yeah you can listen to individual songs and they are great but I think the actual that kind of journey that that album takes you on with all of its passages and uh, and changes is uh, just really uh, has a huge effect yeah I think When You Sleep is is an interesting song to kind of listen to in isolation um, and I'd be really interested to know if anybody is listening to this podcast um, having not listened to Loveless yet and then let us know if you what you thought of the album then after if, if you do go and listen to it well but Andrea I do have our friend Simon Roach who you uh, I DJ at Lumo Club with he uh, confessed to us last week that he had never properly listened to Loveless and he's a surprising person to admit that because you would expect him to he was kind of a bit older than me at the time so he would have been maybe listening to music and around at the time and listening to that kind of stuff but he'd never got around to listen to it until last week so I asked him, I I immediately demanded that he send us a review <laughs> yeah well I'm going to see if I can play this for you as well at the same time and cool. uh, we can we can listen to uh, Simon uh, explain himself about Loveless. <laughs> Explain himself. <laughs> so, I first listened to Loveless this week. And I was in college when it came out. And I um, I think I missed the boat. Or maybe I was listening to some other music. And this seemed like other people had got on the wave. And I didn't. So I was stubborn. And I decided I wouldn't get on the wave. I, I'm not quite sure what it was. But in the years later, I definitely listened to uh, bands that like sprung from it, such as Chapter House and The Cranes. And I guess there's so much music that I love that did come from a kind of genesis of Loveless. I mean, when I, like I listened to the album, I was quite surprised that I didn't kind of know a lot of the tracks on it, but it does work as this amazing kind of album uh, unit. So it does, like, it's just like suddenly seeing this movie you've been missing all your life um i think like some standouts were like when you sleep and sometimes now they're ones that i probably have heard over the years but they're ones that to me go ah there's so much music i love that's sprung from that um i was just amazed about the the scope of the album listening to it for the first time i saw my bloody valentine live somewhere within the last 10 years at roskilde festival and the noise like the volume totally did a disservice to the detail which is like a wall of sound detail in the album and that's what I'm now discovering and um, very happy about it too That's interesting now there you go, that was Simon Roach uh, talking about his first experience of Loveless um, many years later 30 years later? 30? 30, 30. <laughs> what year is it? I don't know anymore <laughs> It is currently 2001 <laughs> as far as I'm concerned I don't know what year <laughs> I I legitimately was writing down the date the other day and I wrote 2017. I was like, oh yeah, God. Listen, it's 2020, <laughs> that's fine. But yeah, that's Andrew Messen, uh when you sleep and also sometimes. So let's hear a bit of sometimes actually, uh, just for mm. context.
So for me, I would like to talk a little bit maybe about um, the differences that make this record uh, so relevant um, years later and the kind of some of the details in the recording that we didn't cover yet that maybe um, kind of help explain. And, you know, I mean, one of the most obvious things when you listen to Loveless now, Domino say things like, it's being mastered fully from analog for deluxe LPs, blah, 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 blah. The t- key thing about uh, Loveless is that it was largely recorded in mono uh, as opposed to stereo and not just mixed in mono as well, it says. Um, so they recorded the album in mono. It, it, and the reason that uh, Shield says that was important was because he said uh, the album consisted of the guitar smack bang in the middle and no chorus and no modulation effect. So to explain that further, so instead of aiming for like a hi-fi production where you can hear all the little details, Shields wanted the new album to sound like a real live album, to sound how a band would uh, when performing on stage to an audience. He said, when you go to small concerts, it's not loads of bass and hi-fi sound, it's mid-range noise and everything fighting to be heard. Very exciting sounding, and I didn't hear that in music, so that's just why our records became quite mid-rangey. Uh, mm. Much of the album's dense tone and lo-fi lore can be attributed to Shields' decision to record the album primarily in mono, utilising an Otari MTR9024 track tape machine for the majority of the recording process. All the tracks were placed right in the middle of the mix. Sure. And the other main thing is that, you know, that Loveless is often uh, cited or associated with is the guitar technique that Kevin Shields has d- developed that, you know, started on the earlier work. Uh, it's known as the glide guitar. Mm. And essentially that means the guitar guitar player strums uh, the guitar while holding the vibrato bar, the whammy bar, whatever you want to call it, and which results in a pitch that wavers. Um, he was asked about this recently, uh, well, in 2012, 2013, in an interview with The Quietus, um, specifically about the Fender Jazzmaster. And he said, there's something unusual about the tremolo arm on the Jazzmaster, is the question. Uh, he said, I modified it, I moved it around and put tape on it so it wouldn't go all the way in, changed the bridge so it was super loose, more part of your hand and part of the guitar, so if you let it go, it would practically fall off. But I was really into hip hop as well. What I really liked about that uh, was that it used so many samples that were half buried or muted, a real sense of sounds being semi-decayed or destroyed and then reused. So I turned the tone of the guitar right down to see what happened and suddenly it sounded great. Suddenly I had this melted sound. And one of the things that like you, the, the quote you mentioned earlier on about like launching uh, thousands of uh, guitarists who've played their guitar wrong. A lot of people thought that what was happening with uh, the guitar tones was that they were just being, there was loads of overdubs, the wall of sound, there was a, a huge amount yeah. of them. Shields refutes uh, that. He says that people make the mistake by thinking we use lots of effects to get our sound. They're always asked what rack we use or whatever. But that sound is purely physical. It's a movement, a manual moving of the strings, the short travel of the jazz master and jag tremolo that gives it that characteristic sound of upwards drone to the chord. We never pull the tremolo up, just gently ease it downwards so you get this drifting upwards until finally the thing's in tune. I think that's from a guitar player um, article, yeah, as you might I, guess. I, I love that. I think that's that's what I meant earlier when I said like I didn't fully realize the the genius of what is happening on loveless until i started reading more about how this these these are physical sounds that are being made in the studio they're not being manipulated afterwards or they're not being like put through some kind of like system that makes them sound this way i have a really (laughs) just on on the uh kind of guitar heavy quotes um i found this really (laughs) funny quote from shields that made me laugh in a 1992 interview with guitar world 
Uh, this th- this is a, a section of the interview. Shields described how he achieved a sound akin to a wah-wah pedal on I Only Said by playing his guitar through an amplifier with a graphic equalizer preamp. After recording the track, he then bounced it to, bounced it to another track through a parametric equalizer, which he adjusted the EQ levels manually. The interviewer asked if Shields could have achieved the same effect by simply using a wah-wah pedal, to which the guitarist replied, in attitude towards sound, yes, but not a, not in approach, <laughs> which I think is brilliant. Yeah. He's like, yeah, it would have sounded the exact same, but I wouldn't have done the thing, so what's the point? <laughs> and I, I have to respect that. I think th- I think that's... Um, it's like, yeah, that's that's why it took two years, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And and further with the guitar stuff, he says, you know, like, I mean, again, refusing that it's overdubbing. Uh, oh, the, people say we must have had hundreds of guitar overdubs are over there, on there, but there are actually quite few. A lot of the bigness of the sound has to do with the fact that I use a lot of open tunings. A lot of the chord progressions are quite basic, but the open tunings leave a, a lot of room for odd variation of a basic chord. The open strings clash against the others in interesting ways. Then we sing simple melodies over the top, but sometimes what people mistake as lots of guitar overdubs, they're just these inversions of the chords mixed in the way that I use the tremolo arm. They create a sort of overdub overdub effect mm. so um maybe we can think maybe have a, l- a listen to an example uh from to hear knows when we haven't played this yet have we So as you can hear there, it's very much a completely different kind of uh, tone and um, mood than more the more traditional music on uh, the album. It is that is very somnambulist. It's very, I mean, dreamy. I mean, it, that's the thing about this. We will get into some of the um, some of the reviews of this in a minute and what people were saying about it at the time. But certainly, the vocal style here is something that um, is so hard to decipher you cannot understand Mm. what the words are yes you can look at genius and see now that there are words but like it took a lot of people a lot of time to figure out um, what they were saying and again the vocals really used as a tone as opposed and like another instrument really as opposed to a main vocal melody and apparently one of the methods they used as part of that was uh, to get Belinda Butcher to record straight after waking her up and so she had a kind of a sleepy quality to the vocals um, and then you add it to all that kind of um, kind of that kind of guitar noise, which is very much reverb heavy and using um, kind of strange tones that people aren't used to, and you get a very very different kind of style. So mm. uh, about I about think this the, album would be really different without Belinda on it. 
Oh yeah, yeah, and it's you know, the, I like mean, I think there's such a there's such a transient quality to the vocals throughout this record, and you know, like they like like you said, they they are used the way you would use an instrument like a string section or a brass section adding texture not very high yeah. in the mix but I, I think a, a lot of the vocal melodies are just kind of pure pop as well and for the, such a musically apparently like abrasive album I love how unafraid they are to be pretty at times there's a lot of incredibly incredibly yeah. pretty straight straight down the line pretty moments on on this record and I think that that kind of it certainly helped me um, when I was kind of making my first. Uh, I like I, I like I said I, I don't remember first listening to it, but I I do know that the songs that I liked initially were the kind of the the prettier ones, um, mm. like it's, it's sometimes and when you sleep and the, the the ones that were maybe a little bit more pop adjacent. Yeah, like soon to me is like such a soon like yeah. Tune. I remember that yeah hearing that probably in the mid 90s when um you know ian dempsey was presenting the beatbox or, or dave fanning was presenting the beatbox whatever it was on 2fm and and, and yeah. uh, network two and you'd you'd see they automatically they'd just sometimes play uh this song and you're like why is this, is this yeah something to this? would it be played on irish radio now of course it wouldn't no but let's play a bit of soon now just to give you a flavor of it So that was my introduction to Loveless and my Blue Valentine in general. And I love that um, tone that you get there. It always, I always thought in the early days, like when I heard that first, I always thought it was, it was kind of a, a nod to Irishness in some way. It was some kind of sort of like trad thing that was going on, mm. you know. Um, it always felt like that to me. And you can hear, the uh, there's an, another uh, track on the album, uh, I Only Said, has a very similar tone to that actually. So 
So I always thought those were very evocative sounds as well. And it, certainly mm. on soon there with the vocals, you can hear how buried they are. So here's yeah. a bit more from Shields about that. Uh, one thing that tends to make the vocals sound submerged is that EQ wise, I tend to use a lot of the noise end of the guitar amp. From that, you get this airy kind of hissy sound all around a lot of the music. Because that's there, I have a tendency not to make the vocals overly bright. So they don't seem to stick out. A lot of people might have the vocal and hi-hat at the top end and the guitars below that panned out to either side of the vocal which has a slightly extended high end to make it more present i tend to put the guitars in the same stereo image as the vocal with the vocals sharing pretty similar frequencies which merges the whole thing quite a bit people perceive mm. the vocal as being quiet in the mix but if you take it out there's a definite drop in the level of the track so there you go it's just like cool. you know, it's like using those same frequencies and um, that's what gives the album certainly that mid-range quality in view. I tell you what, a good, a good, a good way of doing that very simply is like listen to a couple of songs from Love and then listen to something that came out this year, and you'll just hear the difference between yeah, um, the, that's the a good uh, range of, it's of good experiment what's going on there. Yeah, it is. Um, listen to Loveless and, and then listen to something that like Jack Antonoff produced. <laughs> yeah and it'll be night it and day um but but usually you know when something is that old and it has a different technique and it, or it's recording mono you know the interesting thing for me i was thinking about this earlier on is like mono is now such a like it is actually a huge thing because we have mono out of our phones mono out of bluetooth speakers so mm. you know something that was recorded uh and uh playing out over a mono speaker now like Loveless may actually, <laughs> actually I, benefit from that. I never, I don't enjoy listening to that much music on stereo. Like if there's, you know, like there's a couple of Beatles albums, like Pet Sounds, there's a good few albums that have like the stereo and the mono released. And I'll, if I'm listening on headphones, I'll always kind of go for the mono. I'd, yeah, I don't know why. I think I think there was a big trend. I, re I remember specifically in like wh whatever year, um, what do you call it? Um, da, 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 Hot Fuss by The Killers came out and I bought it and I was listening to it on my Discman. And it really annoyed me that the guitar was in one of my ears and that the, and the, at, at the beginning specifically of Mr. Brightside, the guitar is like in your right ear and the, the vocals come in your left ear. And I'm like, what is this? I don't like it. This is yeah. <laughs> like it, it works in, in some situations, but in a, in a lot of situations, if I have the choice between stereo and mono, I'll probably go mono. But maybe that's just me. Um, do you want to hear about some stuff that people said about the album? Uh, yeah, then and since. Yeah. Okay. Sure. So Cl Clash called it the magnum opus of the shoegazing generation. The Guardian called it the pet sounds of UK avant-garde rock. Uh, Melody maker Simon Re Reynolds. Uh, this is a. This is a. This is one a sentence I, I wish I wrote. You, know, you ever come across those? Um, said it's the that loveless is the outermost, innermost, uttermost rock of 1991, which I think is a fantastic phrase. Um, Pitchfork named it number one on their best albums of the 1990s, but revised it later in 2003 to put OK Computer on the top spot, uh, and Loveless then took second. Uh, the Observer called it the last great extreme rock album when they named it number 20 on their 100 Greatest British Albums. Um, for spin, uh, cluck, cluck, <laughs> Chuck Clusterman. <laughs> I wonder how often that happens to him. Oh, um, 
<laughs> look. Uh, he said, whenever anyone uses the phrase swirling guitars, this record is why. A testament to studio production and single-minded perfectionism. Loveless has a layered inverted thickness that makes harsh sounds soft and fragile moments vast. Uh, Brian Eno, your friend of mine, said that the song soon uh, set a new standard for pop, saying it was the vaguest piece of music to ever make the top 40. Um, obviously, <laughs> meaning that as a compliment. Uh, Robert Smith of The Cure said, My Bloody Valentine was the first band I heard who quite clearly pissed all over us. And their album Loveless is certainly one of my all-time three favorite records. It's the sound of someone, meaning Shields, who is driven who is so driven that they're demented and the fact that they spent so much time and money on it is so excellent. Um, Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins told Spin, it's rare in guitar-based music that somebody does something new. At the time, everyone was like, how the fuck are they doing this? And of course, it's way simpler than anyone would imagine. Robert Pollard, principal songwriter for Guided by Voices and My Boyfriend's Hero, uh, said, sometimes when I want to write lyrics, I'll listen to Loveless. Because of the way the vocals are buried, you can almost listen to the songs as if they're instrumental pieces. Uh, at home in Ireland it topped the Irish Times critics list for best album of all time in 2008 uh, best Irish album of all time excuse me and placed third on the Indos list in 2013 and on the very very controversial Irish Times 2020 list if you remember that that was a big day on Twitter um, compiled by Ed Power and Lauren Murphy um, 1988 isn't anything placed 13th and Loveless placed 8th uh, and that was when girl bands, the talkies took, uh, took the top spot. Um, it wasn't all good though. Um, at the, at the time of the release, spins Jim Greer, uh, said that the songwriting on Loveless was standardish and dull and said that while he liked Loveless, it was not on the basis of the singing or the songs. Um, and George Star Starostin echoed this, um, saying the melodies of the songs are either not too great or their greatness is completely eclipsed by the atmospheric production, uh, which he says hinders us from seeing the virtues of the individual tunes. So just two, two from the other camp there. That's interesting to hear the yeah. alternative <coughs> being on the wrong I side could, of history. I, I couldn't find a lot, but um, it's it, it's interesting actually on, um, what do you call it, uh, Reddit. I was having a little sleuth to see kind of what, what the conversations were like around this album on Reddit. And uh, there's, there's a lot of people kind of posting things like, you know, I listened to Loveless for the first time. I don't get it. What, what am I not getting? And then there'd be, you know, hundreds upon hundreds of comments that re really helpful, actually, people just kind of explaining why it might be a little bit hard to get into at first. And, um, then the, I, I saw one that was like, Loveless is trash, change my mind. And, then, <laughs> and everyone was just like, well, you're just, you're yeah. just beyond the pale. You're beyond help. So it's like there, there are people out there who, uh, yeah, that, that was another thing that came up in a lot of these threads. It's like there's a lot of people who will, behind an anonymous account say like I don't get Loveless or I don't like Loveless or I prefer the first album or I prefer the third album but they won't say it like to their friends or they won't say it in like music loving circles because it's nearly this like this really shameful thing that either you haven't listened to it or you haven't heard of it or you don't like it or something which I think I find really interesting and I think I think that's something that you actually grow out of a little bit as as you get yeah. older I, I would assume a lot of these people are young but also yeah it's not it it, it, it is loved by people who love it but by no means are you obliged to love this record just because it's a classic album you know yeah that's true you know listening back to it now I think it does endure. I think it does stand the test of time because it is, 
it actually is quite contemporary. It 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 mm. it um sits alongside a lot of more um contemporary classic classical ambient noise records that are very mm. popular now. Um and there's a huge like genre genre activity in those in those uh, worlds um and I can hear a lot of those tones in there but I guess you know there's a there's quite a lot say at the moment um there's quite a lot of um ambient music which is very nice or pleasant or drony but this is drony in a way that's very catchy and um substantial and mm. so if you stripped away you know the sonics of this and and had vocals and or the melodies that are there there's very clearly um kind of pop melodies at their core as well even if they're shrouded in whatever um mm. you know um kind of like, like what Lancome do with drone and trad you know i think i i think there's definitely some kind of a line that you can draw between my bloody valentine and Lancome. i haven't thought about what it is yet but <laughs> there's it's definitely there, you know, it's, um, and I, yeah. I think if, if this record came out this year, it would sound, well, it's, it's kind of hard to like distinguish it from everything that it then went on to influence. But e- even, even if someone else had come along and invented as, as they're often lauded to have done, um, invented shoegaze, I think if this album came out this year, it would still be named the album of the year. Like it still sounds so contemporary. It doesn't sound like it, it this could have been released in, in uh, 2002 could have been released in 1991 as it was or like you know it it, it could have been released any time from now until until back then and it still would have sounded new and contemporary and brilliant and even if the the genre had kind of developed in the way that it did without the impact of Loveless which I would argue it it would have been impossible but even if it did the the technical proficiency and the technical experimentation on this album is 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 enough to kind of set set it apart from any of their contemporaries if you can even argue that they have contemporaries um it's yeah like it's it still sounds so fresh and so new every time you listen to it and and like the best albums you find different little moments and i loved what you said earlier about you know listening to it on headphones because you know, we haven't always had the opportunity to listen to it on headphones. We would have been like people who were listening to Certainly this when it came out. Yeah. yeah, like when when this came out or like even when, when I was first listening to it, when I was like, you know, late teens or early 20s, I would have been listening to it on piece of shit headphones. Like I didn't have my nice, my yeah, nice Sennheisers. Exactly. And, and it's how like... I always find, you know, those those albums that you go to when you get a new pair of headphones to like test them out. It's so nice to have like a, a digital record of this album now that you can kind of do that with. Like it, for me, it's always like Pet Sounds is like the first one I go to or maybe like a burial track or something like that. And this this definitely stands alongside that as as something where you... You can hear, depending on where you're listening to it or how closely you're listening to it or if it's in the background, new things will kind of emerge from the music. New things will emerge from all of that noise and you'll be able to kind of uh, distinguish a a little melodic pattern or a little tonal shift that you never noticed before. And that's after, you know, years and years and years of people loving this album. People are still finding new things to love about it, um, which is is so lovely. And the best albums do that. Yeah. And, you know, obviously, <laughs> My Beloved Valentine went on to, well, I mean, they took a 22 year break. <laughs> you know, I mean, yes. he's, Shields himself says he went a bit mad. Um, uh, he, he, 
he lost the run of himself a bit. He ended up playing with Primal Scream for quite a while. So he wasn't kind of mm. uh, making his own music because I think he found the pressure of all that quite hard. He had a writer's block. But he did, he did, when he was asked it by the quietest why he didn't do more, he explained it in a way that uh, makes a lot of sense. So I think for a lot of people, maybe, because, you know, not everyone makes albums for an entire uh, huge length of time. Maybe there's a, an alchemy to a particular time and place. Uh, for some artists that works for them um, he says that balance of feeling energy and ideas all came together and it didn't happen that much after that I'd love to find a way in fact I'm hoping I can in this period of time this is just before MBV came out um, their 2013 album but I don't know if I will that's the sad part I'm trying to figure out a way of gaining control over myself trying to train myself like a horse I can ride because I feel happier when I'm more productive and I would like to be happier so I'd like to be more productive I mean not doing things is quite soul destroying so mm. sound like he was wrestling with it with a lot of the creative problems that you know a lot of maybe more and more obvious now for a lot of artists and, and have a an accurate to be able to deal with that and have uh, mechanisms in order to cope with those kind of things and strategies to be able to cope with those kind of things yeah i mean he was he was making loveless at a time when rock musicians weren't exactly speaking out about mental health um yeah and the the sort of the behavior the uh kind of manic you know hours and hours like crazy creative control all of that stuff was kind of just part of you know being being the rock star being the rock genius but actually it's clear that that really took a toll on him um mentally and he wasn't the only person in the band who was kind of going through or has gone through kind of some mental strain over the years so yeah it's just I guess a different time in rock um and it's a shame that it is that way and and also you know you kind of have to think about like what bravery it must have taken to release another album 22 years after an album that is often cited as being one of the best ever recorded like that is I can't yeah. imagine the pressure the the mental strain that that goes into doing that um and also like being being an artist who has been like they signed to Island Records after creation um dropped them and and uh, and then they never really released anything other than uh, I think it was one cover song for Island Records who then um in 2001 I think uh, sued uh, Kevin Shields uh uh his his lack of output so mm. you know it's a tough one um the, It is um, tough and the it's it's stuff it's it's kind of little uh telltale signs that we understand a lot more through a 2021 lens of you know the the pressures that are put on artists but that we definitely didn't even have the language to speak about even in the early 2000s or mid 2000s even you know yeah yeah um and you know, I think like she is himself did a lot of drugs and, 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 uh, you know, kind of, I wouldn't say necessarily lost a run of himself, but, um, he definitely enjoyed himself, uh, away from his art instead. Um, mm. when Belinda Butcher was asked about, uh, the experience of waiting to record the sequel to love, she said, I had two more children. I did a lot of flamenco dancing. So, you know, that's 22 years of difference. Well, one of the things that was interesting, like now Shields, obviously he lives in, in Ireland again. He's, he's He can kind of do what he wants. He uh, Apparently the New York Times article said he's a fan of Frank Ocean. So there you go. Good uh, man. Aren't we all? Um, Aren't we all? And one of the Who things isn't? that, you know, uh, Simon mentioned it there about the uh, the loud, of uh, the reputation for their shows. Oh Kevin yeah, let's talk this. about he that. Says, 
when he says I've seen them once at an electric picnic I mean it was one of those things where you're like oh my god they're so loud they're so loud um, I mean that was a festival show I'm not sure if it really counts the same way and yeah they did no I don't think an outdoor show would kind of count in yeah, the same well, way well again of course Shields being a very technical uh, mastermind uh, says that it was a myth that they were actually that loud and he explains it this way um it's a quietest interview again. Well, it's usually not that loud. Part of it comes from how you measure decibels, actually. There's A weighting and C weighting. C is the whole frequency range, but for human measurement and for legal measuring, it's A weighting. So if you flip the button between them, it rises. If you're on 110 or 120 de- decibels and you flip the button to C weighting, it becomes 130. So that's where the myth comes from. We weren't quite that loud, he says. Mm, I don't know. An- a- anecdotal evidence would suggest that they were pretty fucking loud. I mean, I think, did, didn't the music press, like, at at the time when, when they started doing their, um the... What what the, the the Holocaust section on on uh, you you yeah. made me realize, which is this uh, kind of f- f- famous thing that the band do, where they just like strum the same chord over and over and over at this intense like crazy volume. There were there were some shows where reportedly they did it for a half an hour. Just, just kind of, you know, it's uh, there's there's a great quote from uh, Kitty Empire from the Guardian, which I sent into the Discord the other day. She said, uh, "Those who value their this is uh, sorry the review of my bloody Valentine at the Hammersmith Apollo in London in 2013." She said, "Those who value their hearing may roll their eyes at the Holocaust section and indie rock rite of passage, which experience without earplugs is a little like ordering the fowl in a curry house, which is gas, but." But yeah, I, th- I think uh, like a, a lot of the press, you know, when when they started doing that, were saying that they were they were really damaging their. I can't remember what the quote was, but it, it, it was a really serious accusation. It was like this is it, this is like negligence. This is like yeah. it's it's criminal to do this to people, and uh, you know, people might be like, oh yeah, I like that album. I'm just going to show up to my bloody Valentine show and then just uh, get like actual tinnitus from it um and not just the kind of ring in your ears that you get after a gig but like proper proper like medical stuff happening in your eardrums as long as you know what you're doing and you bring some some earplugs why not um i've never experienced it myself i think i would probably take that opportunity to go to the bar but i guess i don't know maybe you have to do it once and just (laughs) well go uh, through it (laughs) Yeah, I remember, I mean, I don't know if I fully experienced it at the picnic that time because, you know, you're at a festival and it's quite buzzy. It's not really the way. But I mean, their initial intention was that it was essentially, you know, like sort of a a meditation or a a sound meditation that would take you out of, uh, you just get lost in it after a while. That's what they would do. And, Mm. you know, I mean, sure, that was part of maybe there was drugs involved originally or whatever, but it became quite a thing that they would do that would loosen them up and getting into a flow state or whatever you want to call it. uh, In the documentary, uh, Beautiful Noise, Billy Corgan uh, said about the long noise section, um, he said, it's one of those things where it was full volume and for the first three minutes, it's like, oh, okay, this is kind of cool. And then you're like, this is really too much. I wish they'd fucking stop. Then at about seven minutes, it actually became kind of funny. And about 10 minutes in, you actually actually start getting into it <laughs> so um and then um column said he interpreted the uh, audience reaction as we hate you but we have to keep on watching you because we can't believe what you're doing that you're bringing this torture upon us uh which i think is interesting i have a friend who will remain nameless for now but who fell asleep during that part 
That fair, <laughs> you know, it is yeah, meditative. Why not? That's that's totally so, fine. I mean, it makes sense. It makes sense. Cool. <laughs> so that's Loveless, is it? Do you have anything else? Yeah. No, I think that's everything we're going to talk about with Loveless. Yeah. I just, you know, I thought it was a nice uh, way of maybe marking, you know, the, the news last week by really uh, going into it. And, you know, I've been really enjoying it the last week. And it's been, Me it's too. been lovely. In a way, it's like it's been our album review in the traditional way that we used to do album reviews. But we're like, it's a classic. So It's, it's, it's a classic album different. review. Exactly. Yeah. yeah exactly. No, this is great. So. Uh, thanks for listening. And if you haven't listened to Loveless and you've made it this far, please go and listen to it. I would I would recommend listening to Loveless first and then uh, maybe go into the first record and then maybe the third. It would be a good a good kind of uh, yeah. Yeah. way to do I that. Definitely check out the, or rather I will be checking out that 2014 documentary uh, Beautiful Noise which is a documentary film about um, kind of the rise of shoegaze like the it, loads of like never before seen interviews with my bloody valentine the jesus and mary chain cocktail twins um and it's apparently very good and i didn't know about it until this week so i'm going to check that out right. um, and maybe you should too lovely stuff and uh, as ever um patreon.com forward slash 909 if you like what we do and you want to support us we do appreciate it that's where you can uh, put your money where your mouth is and uh, where our mouth is and uh, you can also put uh, your words on a page in, in a virtual world <laughs> on a website Brilliant. called discord where we are all having chats and we were having chats today about a uh, record store day and things like that and some of the releases we're interested in so that's a uh, part of the the uh, uh setup on on the patreon patreon.com forward slash if you sign up on any tier to that you then get access to the discord server um so uh, i think we've had about 50 or 60 people in there at the moment and, uh, lovely. lovely conversations and loving the chats so thank you for that and uh, yeah and uh, andrea thank you very much as well thank you very much now we'll see you all next week yeah next week we're going to do something a little bit different yet again i actually don't know what we're doing next week so I can't remember. I think, we're, I think <laughs> unless some, some other big news happens, um, hmm. uh, we are going to do a deep dive into the music of Italo Disco. <gasps> disco. My favorite, it's Disco Week. Yeah. One of my favorite genres in the world. An absolutely ridiculous sound and music. And we're going to, I'm going to take you all and Andrea on a deep dive hmm. into some of my favorite Italo. What it is, why is it, and why is it so ridiculous and why is it so fun? And um, we'll be talking about that next week. In the meantime, check out mindyourself.com for more. Yeah. And mind yourself and uh, we will see you again. Here's a bit of what you want from Loveless from My Bloody Valentine.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.